internet. I'm John Bailey, and welcome to episode one of Popcorn Junkie. Some quick backstory. I started doing reviews and video form back in 2012 under the moniker The Solitary Nerd. I was inspired by guys like Doug Walker and Louis Lovehog of Channel Awesome, who go by the names The Nostalgia Critic and Linkara. And for a while I was doing all right, and then I reached a point where I couldn't get videos out in time, so I switched over to text review, then I stopped doing reviews altogether, then I tried to restart doing my reviews, and adding podcasts into that of the weekly movies that come out, and even that was hard for me to get out in time. Because of my own procrastination, I would let things pile up, and so I would feel this pressure pushing down on me, and I didn't know what to do, you know, and I would just say, screw it, I'm not doing anything, and I would just kind of get depressed. And so I decided to kind of cut all this video reviews out and just focus on the podcast for right now, and that if I ever want to do video reviews, I don't feel that pressure that I did every time I tried to do it again. Okay, so this week we're going to review the new releases for March 11th, 2016. 10 Cloverfield Lane, The Brothers Grimsby, The Perfect Match, and Young Messiah. Let's get started. Something's coming. sure whether to call this a sequel. It's not really a sequel. It's I guess you might call it a spin-off. I'm not sure. Either way, this is the sort of continuation of the Cloverfield movie, the found footage monster movie that kind of pushed for this idea of found footage outside of horror that had kind of been the norm. Cloverfield showed that you could do monster movies and then Chronicle showed you could do superhero movies, and so is this idea of found footage being more than just, you know, the Blair Witch Project and Paranormal Activity. This time around, it's not quite what you think. If you haven't seen it yet, this is going to be very spoiler-heavy, so skip ahead to the next review. All you need to know is it's not quite what you think. Anyway, 10 Cloverfield Lane is basically... It's more about the characters than about the monster itself, which is kind of different. I mean, it's not what you would think for a sequel. For most sequels, I mean, you would think continuing the monster story, focus on it from the military perspective. Here, it's about essentially kind of what Room is, where it's uh, kidnapping. And it's the idea of, you know, who, you know, dealing with these sort of things things going on in the middle of the monster attack that was from the first movie and the continuation of that. So it's not quite, you know, it's, and I don't want to reveal too much even in the spoiler review part because it's just so crazy to think about and sit through because it's never, it's always playing with your head what exactly is going on. And John Goodman and Mary Elizabeth Winstead are so good going off of each other, whether they're antagonistic towards each other or whether they act, you know, they're actually getting along with one another. And it's really, really interesting to watch. Because, I mean, compared to Cloverfield, you'd think it'd be more, you know, like a Godzilla movie or something. And instead, it's kind of like a play. Like, I could see this done as a play instead. And... 
you could see the characters kind of going off of each other in this confined space. It's really, really interesting. And yet, at the same time, I'm not sure whether or not you you should make a Cloverfield movie. Like, it's an interesting go at trying to continue this franchise, but it's not exactly what you would want to continue the story. It's like its own story, but it doesn't have anything to do with that universe, really. So... Why set it in that universe if you're not going to do anything more with it? But either way, I think it's really, you know, it's really good acting. It's, you know, solid storytelling. What, you know, doesn't really have anything to do with Cloverfield too much. But it's still just a really interesting movie to see. If you get the chance to see it, and hopefully I haven't ruined it for you too much, because it's really good. I understand why you love guns so much. I mean, it completely detaches you from the guilt of your actions. <sighs> Will you stop shooting everything? You ever get that feeling where you're just done with somebody creatively? Where it's like, okay, you've been releasing stuff and you haven't made me laugh in years. Because I feel like you get that point with all, you know so many creators where... Either they're doing the same shtick, you know, whatever they're doing, they're not making you laugh. Adam Sandler comes to mind, and Sasha Baron Cohen is one of those guys who I haven't really laughed at when it's his own stuff. I think he's good when it's not his work. Like, I think he was good in Talladega Nights for the most part, and he was really good in Sweeney Todd. But when he's doing his own stuff, everything since Borat has been kind of the same. I didn't see Bruno. Dictator was essentially Borat with, you know, a dictator. And this time around, a lot of the same jokes. Very scrotal heavy humor, let's say. It's a lot of jokes around male genitalia. And that's not all that funny. It's gross. I mean, it's shocking, I guess, for people that haven't had access to the internet and haven't accidentally gone to dicks.com thinking they were going to go to the sporting goods store. But it's really not all that funny. And that's the majority of this movie. I mean, besides the basic premise of it's a soccer hooligan and Jason Bourne are brothers and they team up to stop a bad guy. And that part is way more interesting than what Sasha Baron Cohen usually does, which is dick jokes. Uh, He does get a, some good points at, like, social commentary, like looking down on the working class and their point in society. I mean, it's like he wanted to do an invert of idiocracy, where idiocracy was pointing out how terrible that lower class is. This is kind of like saying that lower class still serves a purpose in society, even though they're looked down upon. You know, and that could have been developed more, but it's... It's mostly dick jokes. It really is just mostly dick and ball jokes. And that's just not funny. I mean, it's really weak comedy. It's playing off people's homophobic ideas and how they don't want to see that. And it's how it's gross and ew, get it away. And and plays off that sort of puritanical idea that we've had since our inception where, ooh, you know, naughty bits, get them away. And honestly, I don't care. I... I want more from that. And unless the dick joke has a point to it, just putting a dick in there isn't gonna be funny. 
Anyway, point is, the Brothers Grimsby is not all that great. It could have been really great, but instead it's dick and ball jokes. Thanks, Sasha. Thanks for nothing. I'm not going to lie, I wanted to start this review with a play on words with the Martin Luther King quote about not judging somebody by the color of their skin, but the quality of their character. And I kind of thought that was in poor taste and I couldn't make it work. So basically, what I was trying to say with that is, it doesn't matter what color the cast of this movie is, this could have been any color of cast. You know, the characters could have been any nationality, any ethnicity, any religion, doesn't matter because the characters are still poorly written and the story is so cliched and hackneyed. Basically, this is The Party Boy Settles Down. I swear I've seen this movie a million times before, and yet I can't give a single example, but I've seen the idea of the party boy settling down with a girl. That's just it. This, this isn't new. And if you're not going to do something new, do something new with it, you know? Like, if you're not going to do something new, you know, if you're not going to do a story that people haven't heard in a while, that's not done all the time, and you're going to tell the same story and that's been done to death, do something with it. But the perfect match doesn't do anything. It's the main characters kind of riffing off each other at points, and it's not really all that well acted, and it's not really all that well written, and it's not really all that great. From what I could tell, it's from the director of Honey, and that's his best movie you know, in terms of notoriety. Like, his other movies include TV movies and straight-to-DVD movies like the Drumline sequel and the last Bring It On movie with Christina Milian. So this guy isn't known for top-quality work. That doesn't mean he's not a good director, but it shows that his work is kind of consistently on the, uh, the same level. And, yeah, honestly, I'm probably going to forget this movie by next week. He's just a child. He is not just a child. As I'm recording this, we're about two weeks away from Easter Sunday. And, of course, with the coming of Easter and Lent comes the onslaught of Christian movies. As someone who was raised Catholic, but not hardcore conservative Catholic, more of a progressive by Catholic standards where the focus wasn't penance and punishment, but, you know, peace, love, and understanding, that sort of stuff. I'm not what you would call a theist. I'm more a spiritual. I don't, quite, I don't say whether or not there is a God out there because, quite frankly, there isn't really a way to prove that, and there isn't really a need to prove it for me. I don't care whether or not there is a God out there. I don't care whether or not you believe there's a God out there because that's not what's important to me. Spirituality is not important to me in the least. That's why I prefer that terminology. At the same time, I'm not anti-theist. You know, if somebody's going to tell stories about Jesus and about their religion, I'm willing to give them a sh fair shake. And I'm willing to at least listen and see if it's a good story. A lot of times, it may not be. It may just be, you know, preaching to the choir, as the saying goes. This time around is something I'm really interested in. 
The idea of Jesus as a person, as, you know, Jesus as a child and as a young adult, aspects of his life that are never really talked about, because the stories that are done to death about Jesus are being born in a manger. We've been hearing the same story since 1963 when Linus quoted the Gospel of Luke to television viewers everywhere. And we've always seen the crucifixion. The crucifixion has been done to death by Hollywood. And this time around, it's something other than the usual. It's still kind of similar to the usual because it's, you know, about Romans finding Jesus and having that come to Jesus moment, so to speak. And it's not all that well acted, but at least it's something, you know? Like I said, if you're not going to do something new, do something interesting. So it's not entirely new. It's a lot of the same concepts of Jesus, but it's something interesting where it's not just the nativity and it's not just the crucifixion. It's growing up a child in Judea under Roman occupation where the King Herod line is still looking for him and still untrustworthy of him. And so are the hardline Jews in charge. And so there's rumors going about of this kid born in the manger, the last son of Bethlehem. And it's about his family. This movie has Jesus, Mary, and Joseph traveling with Mary's brother and Jesus's cousins, effectively. So it's Jesus with his family and the idea of the human Jesus coming to terms with his divinity. And that's interesting. At least it's something, you know? I mean, it's probably not all too accurate because you would think an all-knowing deity giving birth to himself through a human would still have access to all the all-knowingness of God. I don't know. That's theological questions that I'm not qualified to talk about. Point is, The Young Messiah is at least interesting. The movie isn't too great. It's not of high production quality. The acting is kind of wooden in places. Cleopas, the uncle of Jesus, as it were, is really interesting. I like him. He's smart. He probably is too snarky for that time period, but I don't know. I still like him. I think the girl playing Mary looks really, really close to Saoirse Ronan in a brunette wig, but that's just me. Honestly, I'll probably read the book by Anne Rice because that's the thing. This is Anne Rice kind of tapping into her own Catholic upbringing, looking into the Bible and into the Gospels, and also looking into the historical documents of that time period and trying to tell a new take on Jesus. And I think I would prefer that than the movie. But, you know, they did what they could. And at least it's something. It's something other than what you've seen every single time before. You know, it's not the greatest story ever told again and again and again and again. All right, folks, that's it for the review portion. Tune in after the break for a 2016 recap where I cover everything that's been released up to this point. I won't give up. So, I actually did video podcasts of this when I tried to do video reviews again at the beginning of the year. I got through, I think, seven weeks 
worth of reviews before having to throw in the towel and give up on video portions. And now that I'm switching over to audio, I decided to do a quick recap of the movies that have come out so far in 2016 and kind of give a state of the year in movies, as it were. So, uh, first movie to come out in 2016, The Forest. Uh, good idea. P basing a movie in the Aokigahara Forest in Japan at the base of Mount Fuji. I have a feeling that if Japanese horror makers like Takashi Miike and guys like that made a movie, it would be way more interesting because what we get with The Forest is boring. We've got Natalie Dormer from Game of Thrones and Mockingjay, and yet she's essentially could be anybody. It could have been any actress. It didn't have to be Natalie Dormer. It doesn't matter who it was because it's the same old nonsense that Western horror gets. It could have been really interesting. It could have been really well thought out, but instead it's just bleh. It doesn't matter. So moving right along, 13 Hours, uh, the Benghazi movie from Michael Bay. It's essentially a Michael Bay movie. It's, you know, it's got all the oorah, pro-military sort of iconography. I can't say whether or not it's true to the actual battle in Benghazi where people died, but, you know, it's more of Michael Bay stuff. And as much as they want to say, oh, it's totally apolitical, it's nothing to do, there's a reason the story was told now and not next year. That's all I'm saying. Norm of the North, the worst movie to come out of the year so far. This is the worst kind of animation where it's basically giving up and saying, we're making this for kids. It doesn't matter. So yeah, it's bad. It's poorly animated, it's poorly written, it's poorly acted. Everything about it is of low quality and even the kids couldn't keep up with it. The kids didn't even, the kids were bored by this movie. The ones that actually came to the theater because it was like, probably a dozen of us at best. And the kids were done. They didn't want anything to do with this garbage. So yeah, worst movie of the year so far. Congratulations, Rob Schneider. Ride Along 2, I watched the first Ride Along kind of half-assedly and didn't really care for it. Second one, okay. There's some really bad CGI sequences that are supposed to be based on Grand Theft Auto. Um, otherwise, jokes are okay. I like Benjamin Bratt. I, there needs to be more Benjamin Bratt in like everything. Otherwise, it was okay. Ken Jeong was better in Ride Along 2 than he was in Norm of the North. That's all I'm saying. Fifth Wave, Twilight with Aliens, but worse than The Host. And I stand by that because watching The Host, it's not good. The Host is better than the Twilight movies, but it's still not good. And The Fifth Wave is worse than The Host, but I still think it's better than the Twilight movies. So I can't think that's where we are right now. Chloe Grace Moretz does her best, but it's the same old young adult garbage. Like, it's, there's, no, there's nothing interesting about it, so why bother? So hopefully we don't get more of that and she can focus her acting talents on a more worthy franchise, as it were. The Boy, another interesting concept, the idea of a doll embodiment of a ghost. You know, the ghost lives within this doll, and it, it's, it could have been... Good, it's not really, because once again, it follows all of the jump scare, stupid horror tropes that kind of brought down the forest as well. Like I said, it could have been interesting, it could have been good, but what I really didn't like about it was naming the kid Brahms, just to tie it in with Brahms Lullaby to try and make that scary. Because playing classic nursery rhymes in a minor key slowed down is scary somehow, and I 
I laugh at that trope now because it's so stupid. Like the stuff from the 20s where it's the same stuff, but it sounds scarier because it's played on the gramophone and it's kind of scratchy and it's, oh, I've got something in my front pocket for you. It's all up in the nose and all that. And that's way, I buy that more than I buy, you know, slowing down nursery rhymes. Because at least I've heard, yeah, I've heard the nursery rhymes. At least I haven't heard the stuff like, like Tiny Tim, his version of Tiptoe Through the Tulips. I haven't heard that before. So kudos to that. It's not scary, but at least it's not slowing down and making a nursery rhyme in a minor key. Trying to be scary. Next up, Dirty Grandpa. It's Bad Grandpa, only not as well-written or funny. You know, that's... <laughs> isn't that crazy where we've got a knockoff of a jackass spinoff, and the spinoff was funnier than the knockoff. I mean, that's not surprising, because knockoffs are usually not as good as the original. But they decided that Bad Grandpa could be done better and somehow got Zac Efron and Robert De Niro involved in it. Robert De Niro probably got involved because he learned he was going to make out with Aubrey Plaza, for all I know. Because what, what, how, what? No, this is just stupid, forgettable, January garbage. And yet it's not the worst thing Zac Efron released in January, if you remember that awkward moment. Kung Fu Panda 3. Not sure why it was released in January other than to avoid... Zootopia in March and Star Wars in Christmas, but it's really good. Probably the best in the trilogy so far. And I really dug it. I have to rewatch it again with the original Kung Fu Panda to find out which I like more because this one had like really beautiful, like Chinese watercolor backgrounds and artistry. Like they did this really nice shading effect where it looked like the CG images were in two dimensions and I really dug it, and the only thing I could say is the pandas were very underdeveloped. Like, Kate Hudson was a big marketing ploy by the studios, and yet she's hardly in it. Like, you could barely even tell that's her. Her character does nothing, ultimately. The best panda of the sides Poe is Brian Cranston, because it's Brian Cranston, and that character gets way more development. But it's still a really good movie. Actually, come to think of it, with all that going on, it might actually be not as good as... One, but then there's also like this really cool spiritual side of kung fu, all about chi and heart. You know, Poe finally getting into that aspect of kung fu instead of just the punching and kicking. So I'm really interested to see what they do next. But I really dug this third one, Fifty Shades of Black. Not good, very not good. The Wayans family hasn't really been tied to quality, in my opinion. Like the best thing they've done recently is. Damon Wayans Jr. was on The New Girl, and I can't stand The New Girl. I could not watch a single episode of that. It's so bleh. And so Marlon Wayans has been doing these new parodies, trying to invigorate the Wayans family name, and it's not good at all. And yet I prefer Fifty Shades of Black over Fifty Shades of Grey, because at least Wayans is way more interesting to watch than Dakota Johnson. Dakota Johnson sucks any enjoyment out of a movie for me. I cannot stand her. And if she wasn't Don Johnson and Melanie Griffith's kid, nobody else would tolerate this garbage. Hopefully. I don't know. I she I don't like her in anything, and we'll get back to her in another moment, but yeah, Fifty Shades of Black is not good. I still would watch it over Fifty Shades of Grey. That's all I'm saying. Jane Got a Gun. Small, independent, western, uh... Partially written and co-starring 
uh, Joel Edgerton, so good for him, getting more of his work out there. It's okay. It's a good Western. The only thing I didn't like was Natalie Portman, and I went into a whole tirade in the video podcast review I did where I go off on her being very biased towards mainstream properties. Like, coming off of The Professional and all these other independent properties where she started, she does Star Wars and decided, oh, I'm not going to act. And I can't find the source for that information, but I uh, follow a podcast called Now Playing, and that was one of the things in their Star Wars retrospective was Natalie Portman outright said she refused to act on the set of Phantom Menace. And compared to Ewan McGregor, who fully embraced his character, that is unacceptable for me to for an actor to say, nope, I'm not going to act. You can't make me. I don't like this movie, so I'm not going to act. That's very unprofessional, and I can't stand that. And I, com- you know, I compare her to Samuel L. Jackson, who no matter what he's in, gives his full Samuel L. Jackson. I've yet to see him give a flat performance. It may not be a good performance, but I've never seen him give a flat performance, and he'll do just about anything. You know, I've seen him in straight-to-DVD stuff that doesn't des- where he's the top name, yet he'll probably show up for five minutes of the movie itself. But everything I've seen him in, he's given... You know, he, you get the Samuel L. Jackson experience. Whereas Natalie Portman, I don't see her as a great act. I never saw Black Swan, so I don't know... I only know how well she did from the clips that I've seen. But... At least in Jane Got a Gun, she's Natalie Portman in costume. Ewan McGregor is also in that. He is way more interesting of a character, and he gets hardly any screen time. He shows up in flashbacks and then at the climax, but he needed, we needed more of him, you know? We need to see more of him because he is like a literal handlebar mustache-twirling villain, and that would have been, you know, fun. And Joel Edgerton, really good, really interesting character. Natalie Portman is, she acts well, but her character isn't all that interesting, and she doesn't really bring out that aspect of her character. And so, yeah, it's a good Western, not going to be remembered as a great Western. Uh, next up is The Finest Hours. Interesting story. Probably should have watched a documentary about it instead of a movie because anything that's not on the sea with the movie is boring. It's flat, it's uninteresting, and it's all 1950s talks, all shucks, gee whiz, and then when you get on the on the on the harbor waters outside of Boston or wherever they are in Massachusetts, it's like intense and insane, and everything on the water is crazy, almost like horror levels of thrilling. And then when you go back to the land, it's like, oh right, this is boring. So, yeah, finest hours, interesting story, not very well made, kind of hokey. Great stuff on the water, otherwise completely forgettable. Hail Caesar! Not the Coen Brothers' best stuff. Uh, I will admit I came in a bit late for the showing, so I missed, like, probably the first ten minutes. But even then, I still wasn't all that, you know, intrigued by it. You know, it goes into a lot of the stuff that Trumbo tackled with communism in Hollywood, but it tries to be silly, like a lot of Coen Brothers stuff, but at the same time, I've seen them do better. They, were, did be, they did better in stuff like The Big Lebowski and Fargo and True Grit and all kinds of other stuff. And Hail Caesar is just kind of them trying to be silly, I think. And there's some good stuff. Like, I love Channing Tatum trying to do Gene Kelly. And, like, there's a lot of references to old-style film. There's a dance number that's heavily inspired by Gene Kelly. There's a Western uh, actor 
who is trying to break into who the studio wants to break into you know mainstream film like he, he's in a play adaptation with a very artsy director played by Joseph Fine and it really isn't all that great you know it's not bad it's better than a lot of the schlock that's been coming out in that at that point in the year but at the same time it's nowhere near as great as the other stuff that they've done uh Pride and Prejudice and Zombies it's cheesy it really reminds me of a lot of the Asylum and straight-to-video schlock that you see with a budget. And yet, it doesn't go far enough to the exploitation route that it's enjoyable. It's a taste of exploitation with, you know, a touch of Jane Austen. And it's if it went more to the exploitation route, I feel like they could have been way more fun. Because I feel like that's what people expect. They want real exploitation stuff. And yet that doesn't want to go too far. And I don't know if that's the studios or I don't know if that's the filmmakers, but it really isn't that great of a movie. Like, I feel like if The Asylum did a version of that, it would be way more of what people wanted. The Choice, uh, bad by Nicholas Sparks standards, because at first I thought this was a Nicholas Sparks knockoff, because I had no idea of any of the recent stuff he's done. I remember The Last Ride, barely, never saw it, but... I never heard of The Choice. I never heard of it reaching uh, New York Times bestseller list. I haven't heard of it. It's a terrible title. And the reference to The Choice is uh, in the third act with the hospital storyline because every Nicholas Sparks movie has a third act twist that features the hospital because it's Nicholas Sparks because he can't do anything that's not based outside of the South Carolina coast that's not about a poor boy and a rich girl, and that doesn't feature a third act twist that sends somebody to the hospital. And yet, on top of all the usual tropes of Nicholas Sparks, there's, like, really bad production work here. Like, there's a scene where uh, one of the character's dog, the girl's dog, gives birth to puppies. And so when they cut to the newborn puppies, they're, like, a month old. They're like those, you know, the usual puppy fair. It's like, we need puppies. Here are puppies. Instead of going like the newborn route of getting like little baby stuff and doing like the CG stuff, you know, making it look like actual newborn puppies. It's like, oh, uh, adult dogs give birth to like full, fully capable walking puppies. You know, it's like the puppies are two to three months old and that's nothing like actual newborn. Yeah, it's like this person has no idea of how, how puppy birth works of how birth works, period. Because they're, they're all dry, too. And, like, I have a basic understanding of how uh, birth works. And even I know that that's not how you do it. And I am completely medically ignorant of how, of all the mechanics of it. But even I know that it's all about, you know, it's messy, it's dirty. And yet this is completely clean. Puppies look dry, you know, are dry as a desert and... Somehow we're supposed to buy it. And I feel like it's, a, you know, people will be like, ah, people don't pay attention to that stuff. Well, the fact is you should. You should pay attention to that stuff. Like, there's a whole other scene where it takes place in one night and yet the moon phases change. It changes from, like, full to waning crescent. And it's like, this is simple stuff. A simple continuity editor. It's like, okay, we already showed the full moon. Make sure it's full moon the rest of the shot. Simple. Simple stuff. And it's just really, really bad. Um, not worst of the year bad, but still not, even by Nicholas Sparks standards of quality, it's not good. Um, Deadpool was my first 
number one movie of the year, and all I have to say about it is cue the music. Exco, give it to you. Fuck, wait for you to get it on your own. Exco, deliver to you. Knock, knock, open up the door to spread. With the nonstop pop out and stainless steel. How to be single, the other Dakota Johnson property that really made me hate Dakota Johnson. Because that's here's the thing How to be single is a chick flick, you know, by all standards. At the same time, it could have been really interesting because it wants to tackle being single in modern society for women. And it could have been interesting, and there are parts of it that were interesting with uh, Alison Brie and Leslie Mann. Everything with Rebel Wilson and Dakota Johnson is unwatchable for me. She is complete. Uh, Dakota Johnson is completely flat and boring. Rebel Wilson is too raunchy to be enjoyable for me. I mean, it's like you can't tackle being single in America for women and yet also have Rebel Wilson with arrows pointing down to her crotch on a T-shirt. That's really bad. That's really bad, you know, trying to mix those together. And I also want to be honest, this is also upper middle class white people problems. Because these same problems could be interesting if you tackled them from like a class structure. Like being rich means you also have, you have all kinds of people wanting your attention and wanting your hand. And you're like, how do you pick the right one? Because you want to spend the rest of your life with this person. You don't want to pay for divorces and alimony and things down the road. So you want to, so and yet you still want to be able to enjoy your life. You know, you want to be able to enjoy your life like you're single, but, it, and yet you also have, you can also have the uh, poor aspect where you're both working class and you have all the time you devote to work because you have to survive. And then how do you maintain a relationship in that environment? That could be interesting. If you tackled how to be single from, you know, like the working class immigrant family in New York to the Manhattanites that are struggling to find actual love when they're surrounded by yes men and yes women and people who want their money. And then the upper middle class where it's, you know, everybody else in New York, the people in the Bronx and Brooklyn and, you know, the people who aren't, you know, don't have the money to afford luxury and yet don't have to work hard enough just to survive. You know, where it's all spectrums. That would be interesting. That would be a good movie. Instead, it's just, you know, standard chick flick fare made worse by Dakota Johnson and Rebel Wilson. Zoolander 2. Got the band back together for a flop because it's nowhere near as good as the original. The first one was fun because it was like at that height of model culture where it's the height of that model culture that they were parodying and was interesting and was funny and was clever. This is not that. This is just, you know, usual sequel stuff where they try to up the ante by making it all bigger and have more CGI and it misses the point completely. Like, and it also makes a mistake of completely undoing the ending of the first movie where they, it's like you have to start over. And I thought it would be more interesting if you kept the ending from the first movie, built on it, and then had it be about an aging Derek Zoolander maybe prepping his son for model culture and this and learning about this new age of Instagram models and Vine videos and all you know the, the, the hipster culture and trying to you know keep his son away from that because that's awful and you know things of that nature. That would be interesting. But instead it's you know a lot of it they throw in a spy storyline and it's all kinds of a mess and you'd be better off just watching the original again. 
race, old tropes, uh, new story with Jesse Owens, which I've never heard anything besides uh, him trouncing the Nazis. I had no idea he was from Cleveland. I had no idea he went to Ohio State. All I knew was racism beats the Nazis. So it was interesting to see that, you know, see his story being told and learn about him personally. But at the same time, it's like, this came out after 42 and after uh, so many other biopics about black athletes dealing with racism that it's hard to care, honestly, where it's like, yes, I've seen this, I've seen this, I've seen this. And the actors do great. Jason Sudeikis is surprisingly good in a serious role. He still gets to be snarky, which I think helps. Like, if he, if he was supposed to be super serious, I don't think we'd buy it. But because he gets to be a little, you know, sarcastic with it, he's fun. But at the same time, you, you can only see the same story again and again so many times. And at least they were accurate to history as far as I can tell. So good for them. Risen. Speaking of accuracy, thank God this was accurate to history by having a Middle Eastern-looking Jesus that looked kind of like that scientifically accurate depiction of Jesus that they did, like, around 2006, I want to say. Even though he's played by Maori actor Cliff Curtis, it's still, you know, I'm glad that they wasn't like, hey, here's a white guy with a beard. This is Jesus now. No, it's a guy who looks like he was from that area. And they also understood that crucifixion was through the wrists and not the palm. Because if it was through the palm, it would rip through the skin entirely. So kudos for accuracy. Once again, how many times do we have to hear the same story? Hail Caesar was making fun of the come to Jesus moment. And this movie is the come to Jesus moment for the Roman army. And it's fine. It's okay. It's I praise it more for its accuracy than for its quality because... I don't, you know, it's so, you're so only so many times you could hear the same story told again and again. Even if it is the greatest story ever told, you could, there's only so many times you could hear that story told. The Witch. I've been hearing about this since 2015 and the festival circuit. I've been hearing great things about it and I saw it and it was kind of pretentious. It was very artsy. It thought very highly of itself for sticking to the language of the time and trying to come off as very Shakespearean. And yet, once you get past that first act of pr what feels like a lot of artsy pretension, and you get into the actual scary aspects of what's going on, that's when it gets really good. When it actually tackles the sort of cabin fever that this family gets, when these terrible things start to happen, that's when it gets really interesting. It's not great. It's not as great as people are playing it out to be, but it's really interesting and unnerving. It was the first movie I saw this year that actually kind of sent shivers down my spine. You know, way more so than The Boy and The Forest. So The Witch, give it a shot if you're into that sort of stuff, but it's not as great as people make it out to be. Eddie the Eagle, once again, inspiring athletic movie. It's Rudy on skis. I mean... It's it's the same story told again and again, and it's okay. It's good. Like, it's inspiring. It's fun, and it's funny, and yet I don't need to see it ever again. So good on them for doing a good job, but whatever, moving on. Gods of Egypt. Ooh, boy. Talk about whitewashing. I mean, here's the thing. Hollywood has had a history of... Ethnic characters played by white actors. And I mention Cliff Curtis being a Maori, you know, being of Maori descent, 
playing Jesus, who was, you know, from Judea, from the Middle East. And there was another chance, there was another movie I saw where Jesus was played by a man of Spanish descent, you know, Mediterranean Spanish descent. I don't, you know, I don't know what the line is. I feel like you'd be better off having ethnic looking characters, which is why a lot of Hispanic characters, you know, people from Colombia and Mexico and Central America and Spain are playing Middle Eastern characters. Because I think there is that sort of bias towards Middle Eastern actors. I mean, ben, how many times has Ben Kingsley played a Middle Eastern guy? And he's half Indian. So, I mean, they have their go-tos and they prefer lighter skinned actors. And I think there is still that bias. But at the same time, there, you know, there is a line. There's a, there is a fine line. And it also depends on the quality of your actor. Like, it doesn't matter if you cast a race-accurate cast if the actors stink. If the actors stink, it doesn't help your cast any but any bit at all. And so I don't know where the line is. I do know having a bunch of European guys play Egyptians is really, really bad. It would be fine if it was like Ten Commandments level acting where it's like, holy cow, hoof. You know, like Yul Brenner be Yul Brenner looks Egyptian enough, even though he's like some ethnic Russian descent. But he look, you know, he you buy him as Ramesses more than you would ever buy Joel Edgerton as Ramesses. He really got screwed by getting cast in that piece of crap. Gods of Egypt. I mean, I guess if you want to talk about the story, it's in a mythical Egypt where the where the, all their all the stuff about their gods is true, and it's like very God of War. The imagery and the and the effects are very much inspired by God of War. I swear. It has to be. Otherwise, where would they get that from? And it's just bleh. I mean, it's not all that interesting. The only interesting thing to talk about Gods of Egypt is how terrible the casting is. Uh, ter- how terrible it was, so terrible it was, that they publicly apologized for casting the movie with all white actors. You know, not having a single Middle Eastern or ethnic-looking actor in it. Gerard Butler as the bad guy with um, some guy from Game of Thrones, I don't remember. Uh, I think Jamie Lannister is the character he plays as the good guy, as Horus. And, like, half the movie is spent with him in gold armor and with, like, a hawk head to look like the ancient depiction of Horus. Honestly, they'd have been better off if the actors weren't even there and it was just, like, the animal heads. Because, wolf, just, ugh. And not to mention the fact that it's very, very heavy in uh, Star Wars prequel syndrome, where it's very reliant on CGI effects over the story and the actors. So I think this is going to be an honorable mention because there's probably going to be way worse. But yeah, Gods of Egypt, just complete misfire there. Triple Nine. Uh, One of those cases where the story is straight to video quality, but the actors are cinema quality. Like, you've got Jesse from Breaking Bad. You've got Chiwetel Ejiofor. You've got Anthony Mackie. Uh, Woody Harrelson is in it. Really high-quality cast. And they all do a fantastic job. At, at the same time, the story's kind of like a lot of straight-to-video heists. So you, it, that's why it might look like, why is this in theaters? Who, well, who cares? But the, the performance is really, really out outmatch the 
uh, writing and characterization. So I say give it a shot. Probably wait till it comes out on DVD because I think it's already out of theaters. But it's I think it's still worth a watch. London Has Fallen. Just saw this one to catch up. And whoof. Just whoo, boy. Yeah, I am not into this series at all. I mean, Olympus Has Fallen was better than whatever the Channing Tatum Jamie Foxx was with Roland Emmerich. But London Has Fallen is just a cartoon, and it's a pro-America, F-yeah cartoon, and bleh, not interested at all, because it's not all that great. You know, even the quippy one-liners, that's the whole point if you're going to have that sort of action movie, is to have quippy one-liners, and they're all bad. I mean, none of them are really good. Like, there's no juicy hilarious one-liners. It's a quippy one-liner and then expecting the audience to cheer and it's bleh. You know, try harder if you're going to do this sort of cartoon. Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Another one of those cases where I think the story is more interesting than the movie. Like, if you actually hear about Kim Barker, the journalist, you'd rather watch a documentary about her than Tina Fey playing her. Because it's kind of hokey. Like, it's a lot of the cliche Tina Fey jokes. But it's still an interesting story of how journalists manage being in a war zone. And how they handle that sort of, you know, environment. So, it's interesting. I'd look for a Kim Barker documentary, to be honest, though. And the number one movie of the year so far. I don't know about box office, but... Personally, my number one favorite movie of the year so far, Zootopia. Battling racism through animals. Cute, fluffy animals. But yeah, I mean, I was interested in it because I like the concept of a sort of mishmash of anthropomorphic animals within a city. And then I saw it and it is just such a great, you know, storyline and clever writing and great voice acting all around. Like, the thing is with Disney, well, they don't focus on named actors. Like, DreamWorks will say, starring Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie and Jack Black, and that that be the movie. You know, have the focus be, look who we cast. And Disney's like, look what we're doing. And then the cast is like, John C. Riley, Kristen Bell, Adina Menzel, uh, Alan Tudyk shows up in everything since uh, Wreck-It Ralph. I mean, he's just, you know, it's like, hey, Alan, you got a few minutes? We need somebody to voice a minor character. And he's like, I'm in. So, I mean, this one's got J.K. Simmons, Idris Elba, Jennifer Goodwin from Once Upon a Time, and then Jason Bateman. So it's not like big-named actors, so they don't have to pay that much for the actors, so it's more focused on story and animation, and it's absolutely gorgeous animation, and really Disney's best work since Wreck-It Ralph. I really have to sit back and watch all the, like, because there's periods of Disney animation. People remember the Renaissance, starting with Little Mermaid, and they remember, like, the golden era of the first five Disney movies, and that they remember, like, the really bad post-Walt years where you got stuff like... Robin Hood and Rescuers that recycled a lot of the animation cells and the Black Cauldron. And we're kind of like, they call it the revival years, I think, or the, you know, something like that. And 
this era of film that kind of started with The Princess and the Frog has been really interesting. And like, I, you know, it's been really high quality Disney animation. And I, I'm torn between Wreck-It Ralph and Zootopia being the, my favorite of the whole lot of them. And I got to say, great job, Disney. Keep up the good work. That'll be it for this episode. Looking in the next week, we've got the latest from the producers of Heaven is Totes 5 Real, Omen G, Miracles from Heaven, which is about another kid who miraculously goes to heaven and everybody buys it. More on that next week. Uh, the last in the Divergent series, Allegiant, which thankfully did not split itself into two parts and we only have to sit through one of it. And finally, uh, Midnight Special, which is kind of a superhero but not really movie where it's like, it's not about people in tights. It's more about superpowers. So we'll see how that turns out until next time. I'm John Bailey and I'm a popcorn junkie. The theme for popcorn junkie is funky popcorn by M. Look them up on SoundCloud. Just search funky popcorn by M. And the title art is done by Napio N A F. Y-O. Look up Nathio on DeviantArt for more of his amazing artwork. And then I would feel this just pressure pushing down on me. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Try that again. Uh, random... Uh, Queen David Bowie reference out of nowhere. Uh, um...